Like many Americans, Linda Martin and her husband Reggie were saving up to buy a house. And they were able to save a lot of money, $40,000. And for a while, they just kept it around in cash. They wanted to put their money somewhere, but they didn't want to put it in a bank. Linda says she didn't want to be tempted to spend it. I didn't want the money in my hands or anywhere near my hands, accessible in my, you know, just, I didn't want it, like I said, out of sight, out of mind. So in 2020, Linda and Reggie decided to find a safety deposit box to put their cash in. And they found a business called U.S. Private Vaults, a nondescript storefront in a strip mall. Inside, there was just rows and rows of these shiny silver safety deposit boxes. It was in Beverly Hills, far enough away that they wouldn't be tempted to dip into it, but close enough that they could get to it in an emergency. Linda says there was something else about the place that she really liked. Well, I thought it was kind of cool to have have the scanner, (laughs) the eye scanner. Just tell me about that. They had an eye scanner. Yes. At the, I didn't know that. Yes, they had an eye scanner, and you can only go in one at a time. You know, and I just thought it was cool. You know, you see all the stuff on the movies, you know, you're like, oh, okay, let me try that. <laughs> the cash just sat there, and for Linda, it really was out of sight, out of mind. She didn't think about it until one night, March 2021. We have some more breaking news for you, this time in Beverly Hills, where the FBI executed a search on a business on Palm Drive, an Olympic Well, my time. husband was watching the news, and he just said, Linda, or babe, I can't remember which one. And he said, he, he pointed to the TV, and he said, that's our place. <laughs> that's our place. That's where we have our money. And I'm, I looked, I came over and looked at the TV, and I said, no. I said, no, it can't be, like, and I sat down and I just continued to watch the uh, news. Agents were seen going in and out of a company called U.S. Private Vaults on that corner. They were also seen hauling in tables from a van. Uh, my husband, Reggie, said, let's, let's go down there. And I was like, yes, come on, let's go. So we hopped in our car and um, we drove down there and they had everything blocked off, of course, you know, the um, shopping center. And we uh, finally got a chance to talk to one of the agents and we gave, you know, of course they can't tell us, you know, what, what happened or anything. Because you were in like a SWAT team? What it- yes, yes, they were, they were suited up. <laughs> like a bulletproof vest kind of thing? Yes, oh, okay. yes, yes. Like, I don't know if they were looking for a bomb. I, I have no idea. But we gave them our information, gave them my box number, uh, my email address, and... We didn't hear from them probably, see, I don't know, it was so long ago. I want to say three months, maybe. My husband said, they robbed us. We're not getting our money back. They, it's gone. And I kept thinking, like, why are you thinking so negative? Like, we didn't do anything. Like, we're going to get our money back. So I, I never had any doubt, and I still don't have a doubt that we will get our money back. Linda never would have guessed that two years later she still wouldn't have gotten her money back, or that she would be thrown into a Kafkaesque corner of the American legal system known as civil forfeiture. Welcome to Sidebar, a podcast from Courthouse News. I'm your host, Amanda Pampero. That was Los Angeles reporter Hillel Aaron. Here he is with the rest of the story. Hey, hello. Hey, Amanda. Let's start with the basics. Where did Linda leave her money? Uh, The business was called U.S. Private Vaults, and aside from the iris scanner, it was pretty basic. They rented out safety deposit boxes, just like a bank would. Uh, But they did offer one thing that a bank doesn't, complete anonymity. 
if you want to rent a safety deposit box at a bank, you have to give your name, social security number, photo ID. Right. U.S. Private Vaults, or USPV, actually advertise on their website, complete privacy, no ID required. The site even said, the less we know, the better. Intriguing. Exactly. So Linda earned her money legally, but were there like a lot of other people stashing their money there who were criminals or something? Some definitely were. I think that's safe to say. Um, A lot of what we know comes from the Department of Justice's search warrant, which is, uh, I should say, 120 pages long, highly entertaining, uh, reads like some cheap Sopranos spinoff. There's a number of drug dealers and money launderers. There's a guy who runs an organized crime outfit called O-Dog Enterprise. There's a guy that is a CEO of Phantom Secure, which provided encrypted communication devices to drug trafficking organizations. There's healthcare fraud. There's dark web drug trafficking. There's a possible Ponzi scheme. There's even an investigation into a possible Russian spy. And it looks like law enforcement, in the course of investigating these unsavory characters, kept being led to U.S. private vaults. They'll see a suspect go in and go out a couple times, or they'll hear about it from an informant. And the feds keep serving search warrants for individual boxes there. Who is running this place? These two guys, Mark Paul and Michael Poliak, who the FBI start investigating. And according to the feds, these guys are fully aware of who their customers are and even market their business to criminals. According to the search warrant, Mark told an FBI agent that the best USPV customers are, quote, bookies, prostitutes, and weed guys. Michael, who bought half of USPV in 2019, is called a, quote, professional criminal in the search warrant. He's into marijuana distribution, money laundering, some COVID-era PPP fraud, all sorts of stuff. At one point, Michael sells 1,000 marijuana vape cartridges to another FBI cooperating witness and discusses Flavado. Flavado? Yeah, uh, flavored cocaine. Uh, According to Michael, women love it. And um, in particular, he recommends the strawberry flavor. So the feds think the owners are criminals and they think their customers are criminals. So they got to do something. Right. And in March 2021, a grand jury indicts U.S. private vaults, the business, for conspiracy to launder money, conspiracy to distribute controlled substances, and a couple other things. And that's when the FBI gets a warrant to search the business and seize evidence, contraband, and fruits or instrumentalities of the alleged crimes. And this is how Linda, who was saving up to buy a house, winds up seeing her storage facility on the news one night. Exactly. Okay. So the feds go in, they bust the place up, they take all the stuff that's stored there, and then there's got to be some process for sorting out what belongs to who, and like which boxes are connected to criminal activity and which ones belong to regular people like Linda, right? (laughs) You would think that. We really don't know what investigators actually thought. But if you read the search warrant, it sounds like they think that most, if not all, of U.S. private vault customers are criminals. There's a part that reads, quote, there is no reason for non-criminal clients to use USPV. And then it says, only those who wish to hide their wealth from the DEA, IRS, or creditors would pay to store actual cash at a single storefront operation owned by the likes of Mark Paul and Mike Poliak. They're basically saying non-criminals put their money in a bank, only criminals pay someone to store cash. Here's Benjamin Gluck. He's a lawyer representing about 30 U.S. private vault customers on the investigator's reasoning. I mean, they told that to me outright, uh, that um, there is absolutely no legal reason as to why anyone would have cash, which I suppose is, you know, an opinion. (laughs) It's not the law. You know, you've been a government employee your entire career. Uh, You probably have never even dawned on you to hold cash for any reason. But, you know, if you 
ran away from Iran when the Shah fell, or if you grew up in the Soviet Union, or if you, you know, listen to uh, Alex Jones and think that the banking system is going to fail. There are a lot of reasons why people want cash. None of them illegal. Now, the Department of Justice and the FBI wouldn't talk to me for this story. Surprise, surprise. But I did speak to a guy named Steve Welk. He's in private practice now. But he was at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles for 26 years, and he actually worked on the underlying investigation of the U.S. private vaults case. He was able to shed some light on what the government was thinking. The argument that the government made in USPV was that, look, the government had information that USPV was a haven for criminals who were hiding illegal proceeds there. And there was good reason to believe, that, or there, there was not necessarily probable cause, but there was reason to believe that, that each of those boxes may have contained criminal proceeds or evidence of crime. Although he doesn't buy the idea that only criminals keep large amounts of cash. I think that's an unfortunate argument. I think it has terrible optics because it, if they really believe that, <laughs> I, I think it's always a stretch for the government to say, because some people are doing something illegal in this place, everyone must be doing something illegal. I think that was, a, if that's what they thought, I think that was a material mis- misconception on their part. So federal agents raid U.S. private vaults, and they're there for a few days going through every single box. The lawyer for the customers, Benjamin Gluck, would later obtain a video that law enforcement took of agents doing this inventory search of all the boxes. And he said the whole thing was completely disorganized. You know, there's a bunch of agents kind of squeezed into this narrow kind of space between two rows of boxes. And they're trying to count gold coins, like resting it on the back of a folding chair and, you know, and stuff's falling on the floor. And and uh, it's just a complete mess, it, you know, a complete mess. You know, pulling open boxes and stuff's going everywhere, papers ripping stuff open and, And a lot of stuff got lost. Um, uh, And that's part of this, frankly, fiasco. Meanwhile, people like Linda Martin are watching the news, going down there and realizing they can't get their cash back. Two other customers, Jenny Pearsons and Michael Stork, are a married couple living in Marina del Rey. They had about $25,000 worth of silver that they were keeping in a box in U.S. private vaults. They didn't find out about the raid until months after it happened. The pandemic, you know, had happened. So it seemed like, oh, good, we had this bit of cash, you know, there, which I was going to go get in case, I don't know, it just seemed like the world was falling apart. So I went there and there was literally, the place was closed and there was an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper on the door with like a website to go to for the FBI. Jenny went to a website, filled out a form. She was worried it was a scam, but eventually she got a phone call from the FBI. So someone from the FBI called me, a very unhelpful, um, young sounding woman. And she asked me a couple of questions. And I, my first reaction was like, oh my gosh, well, great. Well, I read what happened and thank you for taking care of this terrible situation for, you know, intervening. And I was like, I work right by the federal building. So I'd be happy to come down whenever. Anyway, so she says that the FBI is very busy and they're going through and they're very busy cataloging all of these items and they're going to call me back. And she wanted to make sure that I had an outgoing voicemail message because she said that they were having a heck of a time leaving messages if there wasn't an outgoing message that said my name that they just wouldn't be able to get back to me. And 
I, that was kind of when I started freaking out and thinking, this is really weird. I, at that time, I didn't even know what civil forfeiture was. Since then, she's learned quite a bit about civil forfeiture. Okay, I'll bite. What is civil forfeiture? Forfeiture is basically when the government takes your stuff. And there's a few different kinds. There's criminal forfeiture. That's after someone is convicted as part of the sentencing phase. The government can go and seize any ill-gotten gains from the person's crime or whatever they use to commit the crime. Guns, drugs, money, that sort of thing. Civil forfeiture is a little different. Here's an example from Steve Welk, the lawyer who used to work for the Department of Justice. He says that if you bust up some criminal enterprise, you're not necessarily going to charge everyone involved in that organization. But these people that don't get charged, they have often made a lot of money from the, those illegal activities, and they shouldn't get to keep that money just because it's not the government doesn't have the time and resources to prosecute them as well. So the, the civil forfeiture scheme allows the government to go out, identify that property, that specific property that is subject to forfeiture because it was involved in the crime or it's traceable to the crime, and, and go after it to forfeit that property under civil rules. In a lot of cases, civil forfeiture is never even contested. For example, if the FBI seizes a bunch of cash from a drug dealer, the dealer doesn't typically hire a lawyer to get it back. Now, civil forfeiture is controversial for many reasons. For one thing, local law enforcement officials often get to keep the money they seize. This is Dan Albin of the Institute for Justice. They're like a libertarian version of the ACLU, and they've been a staunch opponent of civil forfeiture. The police can sort of self-fund using, uh, using forfeiture. And they can generate millions of dollars in off-budget funds that can be spent on things that would never be approved by um, by the city council or by the state legislature or by Congress. And so that's how you have those kind of abusive expenditures on things like margarita machines and zambonis. And, and that's real, right? The, the margarita machine and the zamboni yeah. machine. I'm, I'm assuming you're not just making that up. Those are actual examples of actual things that forfeiture money was spent on, yes. Another big issue with civil forfeiture is that the government is basically just taking people's money and not really telling them why. And the people often have to hire an attorney just to get it back. I spoke to someone who's been through this who wasn't connected to the U.S. Vaults case. His name is Jerry Johnson. He's a trucker from Baltimore. He owns his own company, which started out as just him in a truck. I love it. Right now, it's kind of, it's not that great, but I love, I love the industry. I just like seeing different places and, uh, Delivering goods, you may, I mean, when you deliver the goods, you know, they're going to go to people and make, make them smile. You know, they're going to be happy that that delivery came. In 2020, Jerry wanted to expand his business. He decided to buy another truck and hire a driver. So he took $39,500 in cash, money he'd saved up for the last five years, put it in a cardboard box, and flew to Phoenix to attend a vehicle auction. He had his sights set on a Peterbilt 579. I, I thought it was the perfect time just to go out there and uh, take advantage of the opportunity that was presented in front of me. Were you nervous to be carrying so much money? No, I mean, I wasn't nervous. I just Googled on the internet, was it legal to carry money, large sums of money? Jerry flies to Phoenix, gets off the plane, gets his bag, and a man stops him. He said, can I talk to you? And first I said no, and then he pulled out his badge and he was like, I'm such and such a uh, with, with, with the Phoenix Police Department. And I turned around. And he asked me, uh, was I carrying any drugs, any weapons? Did I have any large sums of cash? I told him, yes, I had a large sum of cash. And he said, uh, can you come with me? <laughs> and I was like, sure, no problem. Jerry has a criminal record. 
two drug-related convictions, but nothing since 2012, and he says he hasn't done drugs in a long time. But the detective told Jerry that he was being investigated for drug trafficking and money laundering, and he questioned him for about an hour. Jerry was getting pretty tired. So he was like, man, look, if you want to get out of this, you're going to give me, let me have this money. So I really don't know what's going on. He brought a piece of paper out, and he said, sign this form. He brought a form, and he, he said, sign this form. I'm thinking that this says what happened in the airport, and you'll be free to go after about an hour or so. I signed the form, and he said, okay, you're free to go. So I asked him what was happening with my money. He said, uh, you can't go with your money. Jerry was never charged with a crime, but the police took his money and kept it because they said they suspected him of a crime. It just felt like all my work that I had put into this trucking, the trucking business was going down the drain. It really hurt. It was very frustrating because it was like, it was nothing I could do. I couldn't go against them. They, they had my money, so. And just so we're clear, it's perfectly legal to travel domestically with any amount of cash. Here's Dan Alban again from the Institute for Justice. You can travel with any amount of cash. It's not illegal to do so. But law enforcement frequently treats it as illegal because they just sort of assume anyone traveling with cash must be involved in drugs somehow. And so they just work from that presumption and don't bother to verify it. And in the vast majority of cases, you know, people lose their money because they can't afford to defend it. I mean, even here, Jerry hired an attorney and, and still lost. He lost? That's right. Jerry hired a lawyer and lost. Then the Institute for Justice got involved and represented him pro bono for the appeal, which they won. It took about two years for Jerry to get his money back and another year to get paid back interest on the money and his attorney's fees. And even though this seems like a happy ending, Jerry never did get to expand his business. Back then, I could have bought that truck probably 30, between 30 and 40,000. Right now, I can't, I can't even buy that same truck for that price. It's like 70,000 now. What about the U.S. private vault raid? Did those people get their money back? Most of the people who filed claims have. It took Jenny and Michael about a year to get their silver back, although they say they still haven't gotten their $2,000 in cash that they had in the box. There's no way to prove if there's cash sitting in the box. They didn't take the silver, and that was actually documented when they, you know, stole it. They went through and documented how, what's in there, and that we had $2,000 in cash in there, and that's just easy for some agent to put in his pocket. He says after they got their silver back, an agent offered to walk them to their car. They actually offered to give us, to escort us to our car with the stuff for safety purposes. And it's like, well, who's going to protect us from you? Benjamin Gluck, the attorney for a number of customers, says most of his clients were asked to provide receipts in order to get their stuff back. They were asked essentially to prove they were the lawful owners. Uh, one client had a, a, a collect, had kept his watch collection there. He also had a, a bracelet that uh, his grandmother had kept with her and hidden during the Holocaust. And it was a family heirloom. And he was holding it on behalf of the whole, kind of all the cousins. And, uh, you know, didn't know how he was going to tell them that after all these years and what she got it through, he lost this to the government. And when he got in touch with the government, the government wanted receipts for all the valuables that were in there. What about Linda? 
Linda Martin, who's saving up for a house. Linda still has not gotten her $40,000 back. There's one more twist in the story that shows just how confusing and frustrating civil forfeiture can be for the average American. It all comes down to a question she was asked on a form that came in the mail. The Department of Justice sent these notices out to U.S. private vault customers after the raid, and they asked a question. Do you want to file a claim or do you want to file a petition? Jenny and Michael, who had the silver, said they weren't sure which one to pick, but in the end, they chose file a claim. This forfeiture notice, it gave us two options that they suggested were really equal options to get back our our money. Jenny and Michael got lucky. They picked the right option. That sent their case through civil judicial forfeiture. But Linda Martin chose door number one. She filed a petition. What the form did not explain is that by choosing that option, she was essentially giving up her right to have a judge look at her case. Bob Belden is an attorney with the Institute for Justice. He's actually representing Linda right now. That part of the notice is the only area on the whole document, which I think is three pages, the one that Linda got. That is the only place in a petition where it says anything about getting your property back. That's it. That's why Linda chose it. Linda, you know, looked at the petition, looked at the claim and thought, oh, yeah, well, you know, nobody here is telling me what I've done wrong. And this says I can get my property back. And so that's what I'm going to go with. The notice doesn't tell you that by filing the petition, what you what you do as a as a legal matter is concede the forfeitability of your property. In March, Linda and the Institute for Justice filed a federal class action in part to get Linda's $40,000 back, but also to get a judgment that the notices the FBI sends out to people violate the Fifth Amendment, which, among other things, protects people against self-incrimination. Here's Bob Belden again, Linda's attorney. At bottom, we're asking for the FBI to tell people who have gotten these notices the specific federal crime that the FBI says has been committed and the sort of specific factual bases linking the recipient of the notice to that crime. And as of right now, the FBI doesn't send that to anyone. And so you've you filed this lawsuit and, uh, you know, do you think you're going to get the money back? I do. I think I will receive my money and I'm trying to help everyone else receive their funds also because I'm not the only one, only box that they confiscated. And, you know, it's just not right. I don't understand why everybody's box had to be, you know, taken out. It's just... That's why I feel like I had to come forward and try to uh, get it out there that this is still happening, you know, in the world. And it should, it's it's against the law already, but you know, it's the government. So, hey, you know, they do whatever they want, so. This is not the first time the Institute for Justice has sued over civil forfeiture. It's not even the first time they've sued over the U.S. private vaults raid. In 2021, they filed a different suit that said the search warrant violated the box holders' Fourth Amendment rights. The complaint compared the raid to, quote, the government breaking into every apartment in the building just because the landlord was dealing drugs in the lobby. But they lost. A federal judge ruled last year that the search was proper. Here's Steve Welk, the former DOJ lawyer. I'm not here to say that the forfeiture system is perfect. It's, it's not. It's a complicated and powerful law enforcement tool that is... I think by its nature is susceptible to abuse by people who aren't really thinking about what they're doing. Um, I, I do think though that the government, it's particularly the Department of Justice, is really focused on awareness of that and, pro- and protecting people's rights. 
what happened to the guys who owned U.S. private vaults? The company pleaded guilty and shut down. But one of the ironies in this case, well, I don't know if it's ironic, but it's just, I don't know, weird, is that no one went to jail. Neither of the two owners. They were never charged with any crime connected to U.S. private vaults. Here's the attorney for the customers, Benjamin Gluck. I've been a criminal defense lawyer for well over 20 years. I was extraordinarily surprised to see such a, frankly, illegal, but also just tone deaf, boneheaded move by the U.S. Attorney's Office. I just think it was inexcusable. I think it's disgraceful, frankly. I really do, as a matter of uh, a matter of law, and frankly, just as a matter of, of of decency. One of the U.S. private vault owners, Michael Poliak, did get some punishment. He agreed to let the government confiscate one point five million dollars from his own personal safety deposit box. That's a lot of zambonis and margarita machines. Looks like even in the land of the innocent until proven guilty, you should probably save your receipts. And if they tell you you don't need a lawyer, you still might. And sometimes your money just might be safer under the mattress. On the next episode of Sidebar, Secession, Austin-based producer Kirk McDaniel takes us to the borders beyond borders. We'll meet folks caught between urban and rural America who dream of redrawing state boundaries around their political adversaries. Impossible? Wait and see. Subscribe to Sidebar by Courthouse News on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review with words. Follow Courthouse News and Sidebar CNS on Twitter so you don't miss an update to these stories and more. Thank you.